Well, you might recall back to the federal election campaign. Seems like a long time ago. It was not that long ago. But one of the topics that came up repeatedly through the campaign, well, depending on who you were paying more attention to, was the idea of pharmacare in Canada and getting pharmacare in this country. And certainly it has been a topic of discussion for quite some time. Catherine Carstairs joins me now, professor in the Department of History at the University of Guelph. Professor, thank you so much for being with us this morning morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, You've written about this as well and uh, looked at some of the studies and where we've been in the past when talking about bringing pharmacare uh, to Canada. What do you think is the benefit of going down that road? Oh, there are huge benefits of having a universal national pharmacare plan. Right now, there's a huge number of Canadians who can't afford their drugs at all, um, and many others who are scrimping on heat, are on food in order to pay their drug prices, or they're trying to um, space out their drugs and not take quite as many of them as they are actually prescribed in order to keep their health up, but um, you know reduce their, their costs. So this is something that a lot of Canadian families are struggling with. So a universal program would make a big difference. And talk about the cost of this, if you can. And I know you've touched on this uh, in in the piece that you wrote in that, uh, because I think one of the, the, the hesitations people have is it sounds like it would be so incredibly expensive. Uh, but then the counter to that is the idea of bulk pricing. How does that play out? So, yeah, there's been a couple of models, including the most recent Hoskins report um, that sort of laid out a framework for how we could implement a pharmacare program. Um, and generally... These um, uh, sort of uh, models show that actually Canadians could save money through introducing a national pharmacare program, although what would change is who's paying the the cost. So it probably would be involve um, increased taxes, um, but um, Steve Morgan's study showed that we could save as much as $7.3 billion um, through national pharmacare. The Hoskins report um, suggested savings on the level of $5 billion. Um, so this could be a real win for Canadians overall. And and the number that I think is out there, or the number generally, is it so, and, and I get what you're saying about people who can't afford their drugs and who scrimp and save and, and maybe don't heat their homes as much or buy groceries, which is horrible. Uh, but is the number about 60% of Canadians that have uh, plans, have drug plans through their work? I, actually, I think it's even higher than that. I think it's about 80% of people have some sort of drug plan. Um, although, I mean, some of that might be, um, drug plans because they're on social assistance and things like that. So a lot of Canadians do have access to drug plans, although sometimes those drug plans aren't enough. And that's part of the problem that we have right now is that there are inconsistencies. Sometimes there are high co-pays that are still a real problem for people. Or, you know, people are also vulnerable. One of the um, stories in the Hoskins report that really moved me was a couple in which the woman um, had... Um, a type of cancer, and she needed a really expensive drug. And suddenly, her um, husband, who's uh, worked for a, a rather you know small company, um, sort of like, oh, the, his boss comes to him and is like, our uh, drug prices have just massively increased, or the cost of our drug plan has massively increased. And he ultimately ends up losing his job as a result because of the high price that his drug plan was paying for his wife's prescription. So um, drug plans are not enough.
Not enough. But, <laughs> but is there a concern that people then that have drug plans and 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 are covered that way that we're sh- that we would then shift that cost to the taxpayer, a cost that is currently being being paid by companies by larger corporations that that cost then gets shifted to the taxpayer. I think that's going to be one of the real political problems in terms of implementing a pharmacare program is, yes, it is going to shift the costs um, from um, uh, private corporations who are paying for these drug plans right now um, to uh, provincial and federal governments. So, yeah, it, 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 it will mean tax increases, although it also means, you know, big savings for businesses, potentially, right? Now they don't have to pay all that money to private drug plans, and nearly half of the spending on drugs right now comes through those private drug plans. So companies no longer have to pay for those dr- private drug plans. Um, they potentially, you know, raise everyone's salary, <laughs> um, and uh, that could result in uh, people having the money to pay the extra taxes that are needed to cover pharmacare costs. Right, but do we really think that companies, uh, the first place they're going to go is, oh, we have all this extra money, let's raise salaries rather than keep it as profit? <laughs> My guess is Maybe that's not, not going Maybe to not. be what happens. <laughs> Um, why, why do you think it has taken so long or that this conversation has gone on so long and uh, we don't have pharmacare? Well, I mean, that's a really interesting question because in 1964, when the Hall Commission report was released, and that was the sort of um, important royal commission that led to the introduction of Medicare as we know it today, it, it recommended the inclusion of physician services, Canadians already had hospital care covered that had been covered since 1958. Um, So the Hull Commission report recommended a full suite of services be made available to to Canadians, including um, pharmacare, including uh, dental care for children and eventually for adults, um, optical services, um, the whole range of health services. Um, But there was real concern about cost. And at the time, Canadians... Um, paid far more for physician services than they did for drug costs. Drug costs have become a much larger part of our healthcare spending than they were back in 1964. So the real urgency seemed to be to cover physician services first. And the intention really was that Canada's Medicare system would come in gradually. So we started with hospital services, we would add physician services, and later we could add these other components. And so the decision was reached that in 1968, only physician services would be covered. In fact, pharmacare wasn't even really a significant part of the the debate um, in the 1960s when Medicare was being introduced. And part of the issue at the time, too, was that drug prices were escalating really quickly. There was a lot of drug development in the 50s and 60s, um, but drug companies were also spending a lot on marketing and promotion. And there was a, some skepticism about whether that was sort of good value for money um, to um, be investing in, in drugs that were clearly sort of more expensive than they needed to be. Right. And, and because it is something when you start listing down all the different parts of the healthcare system, and you're right, we do tend to focus on doctors and hospitals and, and what do we have come to, to expect or what is covered. Uh, but then, especially in this federal election campaign, it came to light, it was this promise of pharmacare, of universal dental care, of all of these things, which sound great, but they are very expensive. Yeah, uh, definitely. And, and I think that the issue has had increased salience lately, partly because drugs have become more and more important to our overall health. So, 
you know, in the 50s and 60s, a lot of the drugs were for um, infectious disease, right? But now we have so many um, uh, effective pharmaceutical products for chronic diseases. Um, there are new products available to treat sort of rare or orphan diseases. Um, and so um, the importance of having drug coverage has become much greater than it was um, when it was initially discussed in the 1960s. Uh, we do have a, a form of this in Quebec, and certainly, and this is raised in the piece and it's been talked about before, the costs in Quebec are much higher than anticipated. Is that also one of the concerns? If this was to be a national program, the costs just spiraling out of control? Um, of course, that's a concern. I mean, I think the issue in Quebec, though, is that it's, it's basically a private insurance scheme, right? So... Um, employers are um, have to have drug coverage for their employees, and people who don't have coverage through their employer um, have to sign on to a public plan that's offered through the, the government of Quebec. Um, and so it doesn't really achieve the kinds of cost savings that have been envisioned in the kinds of models um, that are being put forward now. So the Hoskins report, for example, recommends a national formulary that would allow um, the government to engage in bulk buying practices. And so the sort of savings that could result from a program like that are much greater than in the system that Quebec has adopted. All right. Well, it's certainly um, as uh, we see uh, the government, uh, the, the cabinet form, and we see things moving forward, my guess is it will be uh, a topic uh, that is one that will be discussed uh, even more. Uh, Catherine Carstairs, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. I know we sound a little bit uh, like a broken record when uh, we say we've been promised ride sharing in time for the holidays this year. And inevitably, that is backed up with a, wait a minute, there's been another delay. Maybe it won't be happening this year. And that's kind of how things have been playing out the past few days. And there is now a judicial review concerning ride sherry. And that has raised some concerns for many people, including the Surrey Board of Trade. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Anita Huberman with the Surrey Board of Trade. Anita Huberman is the CEO. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. Thank you. What are your concerns as far as more delays when it comes to ride-sharing in BC? Again, another delay. We heard last week that, again, the Passenger Transportation Board uh, has sent a letter to those that want to participate in the ride-sharing industry, those companies such as Uber and Lyft, expecting, uh, warning them that they're going to receive delays uh, they want to have further disclosure. Uh, they want additional items as part of the application process. And so now uh, we're going to maybe not even have ride sharing until early 2020. I know the premier has indicated Christmas, but, um, you know, the trust is gone. And, uh, and Surrey, as uh, a large city with limited transportation uh, infrastructure, we absolutely need ride sharing. Which is something that, uh, and again, talking to, the, to residents of Surrey, anytime uh, we're covering the story, be it for radio or television, uh, it is very difficult to find anybody, uh, pers- any person just you know, on the street going about their daily lives who doesn't want this, who, who doesn't say the exact same thing that you just said. Uh, what do you think, though, about these delays? Because it seems like we had all the consultation. The reason that it took so long in the first place was because we have this government that insists on a made-in-BC solution. Uh, but, but we were told that 
once that was done, it would happen. And yet here we have more and more delays, it seems, at every turn. Yes, I, I don't understand it either. I mean, we as a Surrey Board of Trade, you know, we're uh, a Board of Trade Chamber of Commerce that thinks uh, and believes that transportation is the foundation of driving an economy. And uh, we expect government to do the same. We've advocated also for a level playing field for the taxi industry. Ride sharing is in other Canadian cities. It works. Uh, it's not uh, so bureaucratic. Uh, there's not as much red tape. There's not this per-vehicle license fee that we're hearing from some of the municipalities in Metro Vancouver. Um, I, we don't know why it has to be so difficult uh, for residents uh, in British Columbia to receive what they want, as well as the business community. Uh, is it uh, is it frustrating for you as well that in Surrey you now have a mayor who is also opposed to ride sharing? Absolutely, uh, and uh, you know, number one, uh, I know that uh, he's articulating that uh, those that voted for him uh, don't want ride sharing, but he needs to now speak uh, to all of his constituents, including the business community and address those needs and what is in the best interest of all of Surrey. Uh, You can fit Vancouver, Burnaby, Richmond into our city limits. Uh, We have been starved of transit and transportation investments. We need innovative transportation solutions. And ride-sharing is one of those choices that consumers can make. And I'm hoping uh, that the mayor and council, uh, local government, will ensure sure that uh, we are the place, the destination for business to thrive in with innovative transportation options. Uh, How concerned are you as well, though, in talking with Lyft and Uber uh, before this even happened, before we found out about the judicial review, both of those companies were saying they were still optimistic that they would be operating in time for Christmas, in time for the holiday season. But, and as you mentioned, with, with this patchwork of cities and municipalities looking at business licenses and fees, like what we've seen in Vancouver, they would bring in geofencing. And that they didn't say it in black and white that it would mean Surrey would be excluded, but it certainly seemed that way because nobody would be taking a ride share to Surrey and then deadheading back. Yes, uh, it is concerning. You know, we're hoping that uh, there is a, a regional mobile business license approach uh, for uh, the ride-sharing industry. Uh, there have been pilots, uh, for example, for the courier industry. So red tape is reduced. You don't have to get a business license through every single city. Uh, there is transparency uh, in terms of what a fee is going to look like for ride-sharing. I think with Lyft and Uber, they're going to take a look at how they're operating in in other cities, uh, what's economically viable within Metro Vancouver uh, and and the rest of British Columbia when it eventually, hopefully, uh, releases uh, out to the rest of BC because uh, the rest of BC needs ride-sharing too. Do you find it uh, ironic uh, as well that we're hearing about this judicial review? It's been launched by the Vancouver Taxi Association and the BC Taxi Association. But the numbers that we are getting as well, and these are numbers from Lyft, show that so far people who have signed up to be drivers once it's okayed, the the bulk of the people who already have class four licenses have come from Surrey. Uh, It's at 44%, which to me means it's taxi drivers who are signing up that want to also be Lyft and Uber drivers. 
I think there's um, a select group of, uh, of people within the taxi industry. It's not all of them. And we, we have taxi members as part of the Surrey Board of Trade uh, that are concerned about uh, ride sharing. All they want from the BC government is a level playing field. And, and absolutely, I, I understand and appreciate that and want that too. Uh, you know, there should be a level playing field, no boundaries in terms of pickup and drop off, uh, number of vehicles, all of those pieces. Uh, but uh, again, uh, you know, there's so much uh, red tape and, and administrative burden really now for both industries. And uh, we should learn from what's happening in Montreal. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it works. It, uh, it works in other global cities. And for us to truly be an economic development destination, we need ride sharing and we need the taxi industry together. Have you done or are you able to look at the actual cost or try and work out numbers as far as what does this cost the business community, uh, the, the economics of a city like Surrey not having ride sharing? Well, first of all, a third of Surrey's population is under the age of 19. We have a young uh, population uh, in the workforce. Uh, many of them are not getting their, their driver's license. You know, there's housing affordability, all of these costs. And so they're looking at uh, cost-effective ways to get around. Uh, they're wanting to raise families. Uh, some are moving out of Metro, into the Okanagan, into the interior, out of province, uh, in order to buy a home, in order to get around uh, efficiently, effect, cost-effectively. You know, we're going to see people move out of Metro if we don't have these transportation options. We want to be the destination for business uh, as part of the Cascadia Innovation Corridor, and we don't have ride-sharing. We want to be a tourist destination. Uh, we want to have accessible transportation uh, for, for all people of all, of all diverse abilities. Uh, it's not going to happen if we don't have ride-sharing. Do you think we'll have it uh, by Christmas or by the holidays? I'm skeptical. I remain hopeful. Again, um, I, I'm now thinking early 2020. All right. Well, we will leave it there and uh, see how things unfold. Uh, Anita Huberman, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to give a big shout out to the uh, bus drivers on strike, but not completely shutting down the system. I support you guys 100%, and I want to thank you for getting me to and from my job every day alive. Thank you, bus drivers. All right, that was a call that came into the buzz line this morning. Wanted to play that because uh, right now we're going to check in with the union. Gavin McGarrigal is on the line with us, the Western Regional Director with Unifor. Gavin, thanks so much for taking some time this morning. Yeah, thanks, Jill. Uh, where are we as far as uh, this is day two of job action? Yesterday, uh, we saw bus drivers not wearing the Coast Bus uniform. Uh, we saw some sea bus cancellations. Uh, do you know of any other cancellations or any other uh, kind of fallout from the job action? Well, every day it goes on. The maintenance backlog is going to continue to get worse. I, I believe TransLink is saying there's another 30 C-bus cancellations coming this weekend. But the uh, the buses will really start to pile up. If they don't get the regular maintenance or the parts that they need, um, they're just going to have to be put out of service. And once they're out of service, they're going to stay out of service. So it's not like they're going to somehow come back. Uh, they just can't keep up without overtime. 
Right. And yesterday we heard from the company that, uh, so 1,300 buses on the roads and 150 spare buses. And I know there's no way to know exactly how that's going to play out. But the idea was once those spare buses are put into circulation and there are no more spares, that could be when we really start to see service disruptions. Yeah, and I actually think it's a lot tighter than that. I mean, they made that maybe a number that they have of 150 buses. But I mean, I was at Burnaby Transit Centre yesterday, and already they were talking about pulling five buses out of circulation. So I think it's going to hit uh, a lot faster than uh, than anyone thinks. Uh, and you've talked as well about the fact that this isn't uh, to inconvenience the public. It's not to inconvenience people who use transit. Uh, this is about to getting a fair deal for your members. How are the bus drivers and maintenance workers, how are they feeling about things in that the job action has started and there are no talks ongoing? They're feeling extremely pumped. As I've mentioned before, they're very firm and determined. Uh, I've been watching their social media and their uh, take a selfie pic today of the different uh, costumes that they're coming up with. I've seen some interesting ones out there so far. A lot of them are wearing uh, their uniform t-shirts as well. Uh, so the mood is, is firm, determined, but also, um, you know, they know what they're fighting for and uh, they know that they're united. So uh, this isn't going to end unless the company changes their uh, mandate dramatically. How do you respond to the company coming out yesterday saying that what the union is asking for would amount to more than half a billion, more than $600 million in additional costs, and that money would then put parts of the transit expansion plan in jeopardy? Well, I think they're misleading the public. I mean, Transink's been known to do that, and they're they're throwing out that big number. But, of course, what they're not mentioning is this is one of the biggest transit systems in North America. There's a lot of employees, 5,000 people alone here. And really, we're in the middle of a multi-year transit expansion for $7.5 billion. So, you know, this is a part of it. Uh, there's no question that, uh, that these demands will, will take some funds. But at the end of the day, you cannot continue to expand a system where the passengers are overcrowded buses where they're feeling that they're packed in there like sardines and where the drivers don't even have basic human rights to have something to eat or take a break or or reset. Um, You also can't have inequities under the system where maintenance workers at SkyTrain are paid more than maintenance workers at Coast Mountain. They both work for TransLink doing the same work with the same qualifications. So it's these kind of inequities that they've allowed to build in and they like their good news stories and you know we've stood beside them many times fighting for, for that exact transit expansion money but when it comes time to rewarding the little guy uh, there's nothing there and meanwhile transing ceos make upwards of half a million dollars a year uh, you, you've talked a lot about breaks and you just mentioned it again that bus drivers often don't get time because i think that's that's where there's some confusion because we have the company saying that in the latest offer it's gone from about 45 minutes that should be worked into a shift to almost 60 minutes uh, you're saying that drivers don't have time to even go to the bathroom or get a bite to eat how often would you say uh, does it happen that a bus driver is working more than seven and a half hours and does not get a break well, it's hard to quantify, but 99% of our members gave us a strike mandate based on exactly that. Like, once again, the company is misleading the public. What they've given us for a contract offer has loopholes big enough to drive a bus through uh, in it. There is no guaranteed minimum time that any individual driver can say that they will take on any given run. They talk in terms of system-wide averages and aggregates, uh, but those are just projections. Congestion is getting worse. The statistics uh, are very clear on that. There are all kinds of delays that happen. And of course, with the overcrowding, it takes longer to load and unload people. So our members are focused on serving the passengers and the public first. So the first thing to get cut is any recovery time that they have just so they can keep up the schedule. 
So at the end of the day, uh, you know, any worker in any job, union or non-union, is entitled to know what is the minimum amount of break time that I'm going to have today. And you'll notice that Transit will never answer that question. They'll talk system-wide, but when you bring it down to an individual driver, it's uh, simply silence. Right, but doesn't the BC Labour Code, uh, it's written into the Labour Code, isn't it, that you are entitled to at least a 30-minute <clears throat> unpaid meal break for anybody that works, I think it's for more than five hours. So why aren't you taking the company to task or taking them for breaking the Labour Code? Well, there are specific exemptions that are out there for transit operators and specific exemptions built into the collective agreement. So we have to deal with this in the contract. I mean, it's a good question. If, if every worker is entitled to an unpaid meal break, uh, why aren't they? And, you know, we're not even really asking for that. We know there are split shifts that are built in. So sometimes workers do get a chance to have something to eat, but most people have some kind of a break. You know, usually people have a 15-minute break in the first half of their shift and a 15-minute break in the second half just so they can decompress and rest and stretch and, you know, uh, just go to the bathroom, all of those kind of things. So they're simply not even willing to build in a minimum of 30 minutes uh, across the length of a seven and a half hour shift. Would it be possible to do that? Well, you know, what we've said is that we're trying to get it so that that is a minimum level and that also there's a penalty. Many collective agreements have it that your break is scheduled and if you can't uh, get your break, uh, then not only do you get paid for your time, but there's a you know a penalty of the same amount of time that you missed. And we think the penalty is key because unless there's a financial disincentive for them to squeeze the schedules tighter and tighter, they're just going to continue to let congestion get worse and the breaks will disappear. So they don't want to talk about any of that at all. Right. And and you talk about that. And I I think that's where I was thinking. And I think people are are a bit confused by that or or not understanding how that works. Because in full disclosure, uh, not here at NW, but at Global, I'm a member of Unifor. We have that written in our contract that if a break is missed, uh, you do get the pay for it and you get a penalty. Uh, I've never used it, but I know people who have. Is the concern, do you think, or or do you get the impression from the company, if they were to offer that to your members, if we're already talking about members who say they never get a break, they are suddenly going to be paying out meal penalties for every worker every day they're on shift. Well, we've told them clearly that we want a penalty, but we don't want to collect on the penalty. What we want them to do is redesign the transit system and make sure they allocate enough time so that the operators have that time to take a break so that nobody collects the penalty. What we're after is the breaks, not the penalty. And uh, it's the penalty that kind of keeps them honest. So, you know, we've offered to talk to them, <clears throat> excuse me, about some time to phase this in. We've offered to work with them on high-level committees. We've offered to introduce the minimum break times uh, and then look at the introducing the penalty a little bit later. So there's various ways that we're exploring this. We know it's a complex system. We know it's not an easy ask. But the bottom line is the company simply hasn't change the, their actual approach, uh, generally speaking, so that we can actually have those detailed discussions to say, all right, we accept that this is a basic minimum human right. We accept that this is something we have to get to. Now let's get roll up our sleeves and figure out exactly how we're going to do it. Uh, there's also been the issue of overtime. And, uh, and as mm-hmm. we mentioned, the CBUS sailings, uh, there were some cancelled yesterday. There's going to be about 30 cancelled today because that uh, third vessel only runs because of employees working overtime. We've talked about job fairs. Uh, Coast Mountain Bus Company has had people lining up uh, looking for employment. Do your members want more workers? Because one would think if more people are hired, granted, it might help with the breaks and it might alleviate some of that. But would it not also take away a lot of overtime that your members depend on? 
Well, I would say our members, you know, will work overtime if they have to, but many of them uh, don't work overtime. And, you know, the maintenance system, it's a problem with recruitment and retention. They simply can't get enough skilled trades uh, and keep them around long enough uh, so that they're not reliant on overtime. You know, people just want a decent paycheck and be able to go home, you know, to their families. And uh, we're seeing right now how quick the maintenance span uh, kicks in. And, you know, I mean, if think about it. If you're a skilled tradesperson in the lower mainland and you have a choice to go work for Transing at SkyTrain, which pays several dollars an hour more, or a Coast Mountain Bus Company, it's the same employer ultimately. Where are you going to go? And so this is the kind of inequity that just makes no sense at all. And, you know, the reality is, is uh, a lot of the people that they're hiring for these transit expansions are not actually passing the training courses. They're not actually getting out there on the road because they're not getting... Um, you know, it's not an attractive position to say, hey, come work for us. Uh, your schedule is going to be erratic all over the place. Uh, and we're, you're not going to get any minimum breaks. And we're not going to pay you like, you know, other large major cities like Toronto. What happens next as far as this is day two of this first phase of job action? The company came out yesterday saying, please come back to the bargaining table or agree to third party mediation. What do you see happening next? Well, our members are firm and determined, and we're going to, you know, take it day by day on this job action, and ultimately we will increase. Uh, we calculated that if the operators started doing no overtime, that that would immediately take out 10 to 15 percent of the system, uh, and it would be uh, all over the place. So, uh, you know, we're going to continue our job action. With respect to going back to the table, you know, the company put that out via press release. Their lead negotiator never contacted me. Uh, I did uh, reach out to the lead negotiator and ask them if they had any substantive change in their mandate, and uh, I was basically given the same message and unless we're prepared to fold up our tent and agree to their position that there's really not much to talk about so until there's a complete uh, system reset in the way that they're approaching these talks the job action will continue it will escalate and it will end in a full work stoppage at some point and i know you mentioned that transit users will be given warning when things escalate do you have an idea when that might happen no, as I said, we're going to take it day by day. We did give 72 hours notice of job action, and we did give 24 hours notice of the specific action. Um, we know, by the way, that the passengers, as you, as you heard from your clip, are, are fully on our side. I was at several bus loops yesterday, and people were walking up and you know, hugging the drivers and shaking their hands and, quite frankly, asking for their own union T-shirts to show their support. So the passengers know the conditions that they have to suffer under. They see how hard it is for the drivers. And it's not just driving a bus, of course. You see the assaults. Uh, you see how hard it is to keep the schedule. You see dealing with uh, multiple different kinds of scenarios every day. So the passengers are behind us. Unfortunately, in any dispute, you're going to have some disruption. And we're asking the passengers to reach out to Coast Mountain, to reach out to Transing, and most importantly, the local mayors. The mayors have been fighting for expanded transit. I know that they want to make sure they take care of their citizens. And uh, again, this is not just simply a tweak that we're talking about. This is a complete system reset in terms of the way they approach transit planning. Uh, our people are not robots. They're humans. They deserve some dignity and they deserve a fair contract. All right, uh, Gavin, we'll leave it there, but I know we will chat with you again. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. Yeah, thanks again, Jill. Just before the break, I played a short clip from Premier John Horgan. He was speaking on Thursday saying he was going to talk to the other premiers in Canada about everybody being on the same page when it comes to time changes and perhaps not changing the clocks anymore. It's also a big topic in the United States. Daylight saving time was formally introduced in the United States in 1918. 
But a new poll finds most Americans want the twice-a-year ritual to end. According to the Associated Press NORC Center for Public Affairs Research, 4 in 10 Americans would like to see their clock stay on standard time, while about 3 in 10 prefer to stay on daylight saving time. So they're having the conversation, though, and at least talking about both of the times, whereas in B.C., when we were told 93% were in favor of leaving the clocks on one time, they were only given the option of daylight saving time. Well, Miriam Judah joins us now on the line, a circadian rhythm researcher and consultant, to to talk about the pros and cons of that. Uh, Miriam, thank you so much for being with us. Hello, thank you for having me. Uh, you're raising concerns about uh, the idea of staying on daylight saving rather than standard. What do you think, what, what would be the benefit of going to standard time instead? Yeah, so the benefit of standard time is that standard time is much better aligned to the light-dark cycle of the sun. So when it is noon on standard time, that is midday when it comes to the light-dark cycle. Whereas DST, daylight saving time, is an artificial time that we introduce. And it moves all our social schedules one hour earlier. Uh, Now, the issue with that is that we have a circadian clock. And our circadian clock in the brain regulates the timing of our physiology. So it regulates when the temperature goes up and down. It regulates when certain hormones are being released. For example, melatonin, the timing of melatonin. And also our sleep-wake cycle. So when we are on daylight saving time, we are misaligned. Our social schedules are misaligned to our circadian clock, which is aligned to the light-dark cycle of the sun. So we would like to see standard time all year round. So we want to get rid of the time change as well. Nobody likes the time change. But we want to be on permanent standard time, not on permanent daylight saving time. Do we not adapt, though, as humans? Because people live at different places all around the planet, whether you're in the north where you get darkness in the winter and light. Do we not adapt when, when that happens? Yeah, so, I mean, this is a big misconception. We think that we adjust. Uh, and when we do travel across time zones, that's true, we do adjust. And the reason is because now we're, at it, we're exposed to new light, dark cycle of the sun. So when you're flying to Toronto, uh, you're off at first by three hours. Your physiology is still in Vancouver time. But within a few days, you now, your physiology now adjusts to the new light, dark cycle of Toronto. And it is advanced by three hours. However, uh, if we're staying in Vancouver and we're tra- not traveling across time zones, we still remain synchronized to the light-dark cycle of Vancouver. But now, under DST, we are moving our social schedules to Calgary, but we are under the Vancouver light-dark cycle. So we are misaligned. Our social schedules are misaligned. All right. If we stayed then on standard time instead of daylight saving, mm-hmm. uh, some people have been raising concerns that it would make it very dark in the mornings or kids would be going to school in what would feel like the, the dead of night. What yeah. about those concerns? So under, under daylight saving time, we would have more darkness in the morning. Uh, under, sta- uh, under standard time, we will have more light in the morning. So what happens on a daylight saving time is that now our social schedules are an hour earlier and we would have to get up way before the sunrise. So in Vancouver, the sun will rise in December at 9.05. In uh, in other places like Prince George, it will only be 10 a.m. in December that the sun will rise. So we will have to get up way before the sunrise when our melatonin rhythms are still really high, when we are still physiologically asleep. And we are fatigued. So also at increased risk for car accidents on the way to work, for example. Plus, we're not getting enough sleep. And we know that sleep deprivation is linked to a bunch of health problems. And so is circadian misalignment. When we're misaligned, when our social schedules are misaligned to our circadian clock. 
Right. And, and I guess then the flip side of that is then in the summertime when a lot of people look forward to those long, sunny evenings where the sun, it almost seems like the sun can, it stays out in Vancouver till 10 p.m. We would lose yeah. that hour. So we would lose that hour. So the sunset would be a little bit earlier in the summer months. But uh, I think it would be good for children because children are up way too late in the summer months. I see it with my own children, so I have to have blackout blinds. They are up and running. It's so hard to get them to sleep, and they're sleep-deprived in the, in the summer months. Uh, so uh, uh, we know that when we are, the more we are aligned to our light-dark cycle, the better it is for our health. Uh, and this includes children. It includes, it, it, you know, this affects all of us. And there are places that don't change the clocks. Can we learn from them? Do they stay, for the most part, do you know, do they stay on standard time? Uh, as far as I know, most of them are on standard time. But, um, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to comment much on that. I don't know much about this. Sure. Uh, w- then what are the other, uh, the, <clears throat> the rhythm of our sleep and such? Uh, are there other benefits, do you think, of exploring the idea of standard time and not leaving the clocks forward the hour? The, the, sorry, the, the benefit of being on standard time versus uh, daylight saving time all year round? Is that what you're, yeah, yeah. you're referring to? Yeah, I mean, there are only benefits. There are, no, there are no negatives to this when it comes to our circadian rhythms and our health. There's really no reason to go on daylight saving time. We're expecting that if we have daylight saving time all year round, we're expecting, uh, more, we're expecting that this will affect public health and safety. So we're expecting that there will be more circadian disruption, that it will uh, decrease our sleep duration, which already has been shrinking in the last uh, uh, 50 years. And we know that these are uh, associated with increases for diabetes, heart disease, depression. I believe this is one of the reasons we have so much depression here on the West Coast is because we're not getting enough morning light exposure. So I believe that if we are on permanent daylight saving time, depression, especially seasonal affective depression, will increase in in British Columbia. You've written a letter uh, to the Premier's office about this. Have you heard anything back? No, I'm waiting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and do you find it strange that they put this out to the public? I think it was the most engaged online survey that that people people were passionate about this and and wrote back, but they weren't given the option of picking standard time. It's so disappointing. It really is. And especially considering all the science out there. Uh, so it's not just us. It's, it's, there are chronobiologists all over the world writing position papers. There are societies of chronobiology all over the world that have written position papers. The evidence is very strong. We sent the government a list of at least 30 scientific publications showing the, health, the negative health implications of daylight saving time. Uh, so we have the evidence. We have the knowledge. We need to consider this, this evidence. And uh, it, it does seem uh, like we, we put so much into this. And I, I think people, do we not take it serious enough as far as like, you mentioned the car accidents and the health, the health of the, the health of, think, of us? I think people, you know, I think people are fed up with the time change and I really understand it. Nobody likes the time change. And people are just like, let's get, you know, let's just take a decision. I don't care which time uh, we are on because people assume that we adjust. Uh, but we know from our thinking rhythms that we don't adjust. So we see this, for example, in shift workers. People think that shift workers adjust. It just takes some time or some discipline. But we know that after 30 years of permanent shift work, their circadian rhythms never adjust. And the reasoning is because they remain exposed to the light-dark cycle of the sun. So it's the same thing here. So it's not like we will be misaligned like a shift worker. We're not up at, at, at night. But this one hour is still a misalignment. And in the long run, 
we, we, we have evidence to believe that this will negatively impact our health and also our safety because of fatigue. Which would also uh, lend to the argument, and, and the Premier has said this, we can't really do it alone. Nobody wants to be in B.C. and now suddenly we're a different yeah. time from Washington yeah. State and, yeah. and people crossing yeah. the border. It would kind of be chaotic, I think, for some people. Yeah, yeah. So uh, chronobiologists all over the world are talking to local governments and try to reason with them that this is a really bad idea uh, to go on permanent daylight saving time. I don't know how that first came into place, that, that, that even there's a discussion that we'd be permanently on an artificial time as opposed to a sun time. Uh, but yeah, ideally, we all want to be in agreement. And um, so I do know that the EU right now is uh, considering uh, moving to permanent standard time. And I believe also uh, California. So my hopes are that if California moves to standard time, that the rest will follow. All right. We will follow up, uh, I'm sure. Uh, Miriam, Judah, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you.